0: I want to take a, a moment of personal privilege this morning before I actually begin the sermon to thank all of those who, should we say, set the table for me this morning. Uh, Sandy and your dingalings, uh, <laughs> they know I love them and I call them that all the time. You know, Lee, Francois, Becky and Tina, uh, this church is, is blessed with so many wonderful and talented servants. And it's just a real privilege for me to be a part of any service of which they are a part. Uh, God bless you all, because you surely bless me. Praise the Lord, as Francois just read, for His glory is above the earth and the heaven. He has raised up the horn to Becky's altar up there. Great big cornucopia, the horn of plenty, the horn of salvation for His people. Praise the Lord. And God's people said, Amen. You know, I gotta admit, Brother Bill really tickled me last Sunday when he talked about never having seen a statue of Saint Francis more than about two feet or so tall. And and, and that comment really struck a chord with me because well, Mickey and I have one of those diminu- diminutive statues of Saint Francis uh, was out in our our front yard next to a fountain that we had there. Uh, but we tore the fountain down last week. Uh, and uh in the process, a lot of you may not be able to see this, but in the process of tearing the fountain and its sand base down, we unearthed these almost praying hands, not quite, uh, but hands held out to hold this uh, delightful little bird. Uh, I will confess it didn't look anything like this when we dug it up. Uh, my talented bride, Mickey, has repainted it over the course of uh, the week, and it looks a whole lot better, but I thought it was really appropriate as we gave thanks this morning, and particularly as we talked about St. Francis, uh, that we have, uh, you know, some kind of... Uh, thing up here on which to focus your attention rather than focusing it on me, although I hope you're, you're listening. But anyway, St. Francis now stands outside of the garage door to our home in what we hope at least to be silent blessing. You know, Benjamin has loved that statue. May I go beyond that and say Benjamin has had a significant relationship with that statue since he was... Well, since he was old enough to walk. And sometimes he'll even still go to the door and say, I want to see Francis. It's never St. Francis. Never Francis of Assisi, but I want to see Francis. And so Mickey or I, one or the other, will take him out in the yard. And oftentimes Benjamin will stand right in front of that statue of St. Francis. And the two, if you would, will look at each other. Look at each other for what seems to be time on end or at least as long as hyperactive little Benjamin can stand and look at much of anything. You call me crazy and you won't be the first. But I really believe that somehow Benjamin communicates with God through that statue. In the same way, I believe that he does with a portrait, if you would, of the Christ that has been above the mantle in our home since the day I graduated from seminary, a those many years ago. Francis of Assisi, St. Francis, had a special relationship with special people as he did with animals and trees, with the world around him, the planets that orbited above him. More importantly, I think, St. Francis saw God in each and every one of these special people and these special things that he loved so very much. And to me, it's no wonder that Francis of Assisi was canonized, was made a saint within two years, almost unheard of within two years of his death. But if you know St. Francis' story, you know that uh, he didn't start out that way, not by a long shot. Francis was born to a wealthy cloth merchant in Italy in the latter years of the 12th century. He lived a life of wealth and of privilege until he went off to fight into one of the many wars that plagued Medieval Europe. Francis was captured in the first of those wars in which he fought and spent more than a year as a prisoner of war. During the second of his wars, he contracted some very serious illness and was sent home to recover. And it was while he was recuperating from that particular illness that Francis began to have visions, and these visions ultimately ended in his conversion. And these mysterious encounters that Francis had would later lead him into the life that he eventually accepted for himself in God's name. We're told that after he recovered from that illness that Francis made a pilgrimage to Rome. And while he was in the holy city, he or that holy city anyway, he uh, encountered a beggar. And he decided he was going to swap places with that beggar. And he did for a day. Which was going to become one of those other life-changing experiences for him. The next year, after his journey to Rome, Francis was praying near a derelict old church when he heard, if you would, a voice calling him to rebuild that house of God, which he did by selling a cartload of his father's cloth, for which the old man disowned him. Thereafter, Francis became a hermit, and in so doing, he was able to rebuild four churches. Now, I'm getting down out of the pulpit. I'm going to quit preaching and go to meddling. I know I am. If Francis can rebuild four churches from the proceeds for begging, why can't we pay off the outstanding debt on our building that we contracted several years ago. Now I'm going to quit meddling and go to preaching. As if I would not Later, Francis felt the calling to live out the mandate that Jesus gave to His disciples when He sent them out into ministry on their own in Matthew 10. Proclaim the good news, Jesus told them. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And Jesus further told His disciples to take no money with them, take no extra clothes, nor were they to accept any payment for services rendered. And from the time Francis accepted that mission as his own, He espoused poverty and lived the life of a beggar. He preached repentance and brotherly love and peace and forgiveness for all. And believe it or not, with this lifestyle and with that uh, sermon base, he attracted a significant following. And within a year's time, Francis was ordained And his order, the Franciscans, became formally recognized by the Roman Catholic Church. Then, as now Francis, or not Francis, but his order, have accomplished many amazing things in the world around them, and I believe that today the church owes a tremendous debt of gratitude to this lowly man of God and those who call themselves by his name and to undertake that simple lifestyle that he undertook and invited others to share in. Francis felt a kindred spirit with the entire world around him. Not just other people, not just special people, but all of nature as well. It's said that when he didn't have a human audience, and maybe sometimes even when he did, that Francis would preach to the birds and the animals. He just had to proclaim the love of God as shown in Jesus Christ. And I'm told that like special people, these animals uh, would approach Francis when they wouldn't approach anybody else. You know, kind of like that movie Robert Redford did some years ago, The Horse Whisperer, or Cesar, what's his name, on the the Animal Channel, you know, corralling these uh, bad dogs and whatever. Francis was just one of these special guys, Comer, that you had to be as well, I should think. Francis was that kind of a guy. And his life, and love are reflected in a great hymn which we don't sing very much, Hymn 62, All Creatures of Our God and King, yet which I am told that Francis wrote just a couple of weeks before his death based in large measure upon Psalm 48. And among other things, that great hymn says, All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice with us and sing, O praise ye, Alleluia, O oh, brother sun with golden beam, O oh, sister moon with silver gleam, O oh, praise ye, O oh, praise ye, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. I won't make you sing it as Francois just did a few minutes ago, but I'm glad you did, brother. It was great, wonderful experience. Praise ye the Lord, Alleluia. In this regard, Francis, I think, had a great deal in common with our Native American ancestors here in these United States. Because, you see, they too felt a kinship with the realm of nature around them, with the plants and with the animals and the astral phenomena which we see up in the heavens. To them, all of life, all of creation was sacred, and we owe them a great debt of gratitude, in spite of the way that we have treated them, yea, these last 500 years. We recall their natural stewardship during this week to come as we remember and reenact that first, or at least what we consider to be the first Thanksgiving feast here in America held at Plymouth Plantation during the fall of 1621. Excuse me for saying so, but uh, I guess the history teacher's got to come out in me at some point in time. Our pilgrim forefathers and foremothers just may have had a little bit more faith than they had common sense. Okay? They left England in 1620 too late to make the transatlantic voyage before the onset of winter that year. What's more, they landed in New York and then sailed north uh, to the coast of Massachusetts instead of going to Virginia where their charter was issued for them to set up a new colony. When they got to Massachusetts, they didn't have enough provisions to tide them over for the harsh winter that there was to come. Massachusetts winter's are they not, John, much more harsh than they are in merry old England because of uh, certain climate situations? And truth to tell, every single one of these pilgrim forefathers and mother- mothers would have died that first winter had it not been for the graciousness and the generosity of their Native American neighbors. Yet, as it as it was more than half of them died that first awful winter over here. But thank God, some of them did survive. And in September of 1621, the 50 remaining pilgrims invited some 90 of their benefactors to share in a feast of thanksgiving with them. I turn a corner here to say, ladies, as you're preparing your Thanksgiving feasts in the week to come, you may be interested to know that that entire dinner for 140 people was prepared by the four surviving adult women in the crew of those pilgrims. Aren't you glad you don't have to do that? Mm-hmm. That was the first of our American Thanksgivings, or at least the one that we most often look forward to. But there have been others, maybe not quite, but almost as memorable. For instance, the one that took place during our American Revolution. By the year 1777, the war effort against Great Britain was going very poorly. Washington's sources and others had suffered defeat after defeat, setback after setback on the battlefield of our revolution. Furthermore, the British had run our Continental Congress out of the Capitol, which was at Philadelphia at the time. Hope that doesn't engender too many thoughts in anybody, but I sure had one passing through my, my mind at the moment. Never mind, we're not going there. Yet just before Washington and his troops spent that awful winter at Valley Forge, a displaced Congress proclaimed a national day of thanksgiving. And on their behalf, John Adams wrote, that at one time and with one voice the good people of these United States may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves for the service of their divine benefactor. Thereafter, I'm told that Thanksgiving was a rather on-again, off-again thing, at least until the year 1863, the bloodiest of our American Civil War. Not long after he gave his famous Gettysburg Address, commemorating the cemetery on the battlefield where there were over 50,000 American casualties on both sides, President Abraham Lincoln issued an order for a nationwide observance of thanksgiving. In issuing that proclamation on his behalf, Secretary of State William Seward wrote, at least in part, in the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, the peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed, except, pretty big exception, except in the theater of military conflict. Mr. Seward continued, no human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God. The gracious gifts of the Most High God. And so I asked this morning, if our ancestors could set aside time to offer their thanksgiving, their gratitude to God in the times in which they lived... Why can't, why shouldn't we do precisely the same? You know, as I look back over the almost 11 months of 2014, I can draw the conclusion that it may not have been the best of years for most of us but it has certainly not been the worst. I know times are tough, but I don't see anybody starving to death in here. There are, of course, those eternal conflicts in the Middle East, and I know that folks are shooting one another in record numbers in our cities and on our school campuses. Most certainly there is tension between the races and the classes, between the Democrats and the Republicans, between the so-called liberals, whatever and whoever they are, and those who consider themselves to be conservative, whatever on earth that is. There are the constant battles between the executive and the legislative branches of our government and between the haves and the have-nots everywhere but at least we're not actively engaged in armed rebellion and the conflict of another uncivil war. And here in this portion of Georgia, I've got to say, and at least Uncle Billy Sherman and his minions aren't marching through our backyards and tearing up everything for miles around like he was 150 years ago in this very place at this very time of the year. Yep. Yeah, I understand. Things are tough. But they could be a whole lot worse. And I think, therefore, it would be quite appropriate if we would approach this week and the celebration to come as an occasion to truly give thanks for all things. All things. For in spite of the confusion and the frustration, the heartache and the pain, even in the midst of difficulty, hardship and loss, we have much for which to give thanks. And if we just take the time and make the effort to do so among the turkey and the pies, among, amidst the parades and the football games... I think in so doing, we will find our lives blessed even more than they are right now. Maybe St. Francis did indeed set the tone all those years ago. By ridding himself of his worldly possessions, he allowed God to possess him. And thus, because Francis had nothing, he really had everything. Let that soak in a minute. Because he possessed nothing, he had everything. And therefore, Francis could indeed give thanks in and for all things. Thank God for his saints who lead us on into the kingdom. Amen.